Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So faith has always been really important to me. Like, I don't remember a time that it wasn't a part of my life. And it was always really important to my family. This is Andy Kolber. Andy is a therapist and the author of Try Softer, a fresh approach to move us out of anxiety, stress, and survival mode and into a life of connection and joy. But part of my experience that, you know, I think for a long time was hard for me to parse out and understand is that there was also really significant trauma in my family. I'm a survivor of complex trauma, and I don't usually talk a ton about the details of that, but the big picture is that my dad has a lot of mental health issues and that he didn't address and wasn't willing to address. And that resulted in a lot of like psychological and verbal abuse for me and my siblings and my mom. And my mom's mm-hmm. also a recovering alcoholic. She's been sober for about 14 years. So all that to say, that's a lot to piece together for any person, sure. you know, like to have this experience. I'm so grateful to have known Jesus my really my whole life. And my experience of God has over time, like there's been a lot of different seasons where God has felt really near. And there have been times when I have been like, God, where are you? And, you know, the longer that I do the work that I do, which is I'm a, I'm a therapist, the more that my faith continues to ground me in the work that I do. Because part of my work is that as a trauma therapist primarily, is that I've come to just value how our bodies work and how our bodies are designed and how God, I really believe it's God's goodness that both allows us to move through pain, like we're physiologically like designed to move through pain. But when we're not able to do that, that's when a trauma response comes up. Even though that can create some hardships in our life in the moment, that's helpful and it's protective. And so for me, I, I it, it always comes back to being super rooted in this reality that God is for us and loves us and gives us a lot of resources in this life. And so it's been quite the journey to get to the 37 years I am now. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, I'll talk to Andy Kolber about her work as a trauma-informed therapist, how trauma has become such a central issue in our time, and how we might learn from Jesus to understand our wounds and to come home to ourselves. It's a great conversation, so stay with us. Now I can't you stay with me? Why don't you tell me? Cause it makes a fool of me. It was a 
that phrase complex trauma, I think is probably an interesting one. Is there a generic way to kind of describe what that means? Yeah. So the best way to probably understand that phrase is to first just define what trauma is. I define it as any experience that overwhelms our nervous system or capacity to cope. And so what that does is that instead of moving through an experience and allowing it to fully process in our bodies, it gets stuck. And so within that, there's big T trauma and there's little T trauma. And typically big T trauma is is what you would think is PTSD, essentially. And little T trauma is basically anything else, anything that is too overwhelming for us to process and does still get stuck in our bodies. And so when I say complex trauma, what that meant for me is that developmentally, I experienced chronic little T trauma all throughout my childhood. And so Mm. when we experience that level of chronicity, and especially in childhood, that really shapes kind of who we become because in childhood is such an important time in the formation of our brains and our bodies that impacts really like what our body learns about the world. And so complex trauma, a lot of times is thought of as the chronic element of it. And it's chronic in the sense that not only is it happening over and over, but there's no repair. There isn't like a time when it's like, okay, this gets worked through and then we're on to the next thing. It builds up, you know, within my own experience, part of it was, you know, having that be a caregiver who primarily was really unsafe in childhood. That is a really, that's a really big deal because our bodies are designed to be able to need our caregivers. And so that's kind of an overview of what that might look like. That's really helpful. I I feel like there's a lot of talk. I mean, I, I feel like the book that I've seen passed around more than any other in the last, you know, two to three years is The Body Keeps the Score. And with it comes a lot of conversation around trauma to the point where it, it's almost become a buzzword. Mm-hmm. Do you see danger or concerns in people using the word too lightly, using the word? Because it almost becomes a thing, well, if everything's trauma, mm-hmm. nothing's trauma. You know, I think on one end, I love that people are understanding the significance and the weight of trauma, you know, because there's never been a time when trauma hasn't impacted my life. And so I speak specifically from that location as a person who survived that, that type of trauma and as someone who's who works a lot with folks who have trauma. But I do think that The concern that I would maybe have is that we, like trauma is not an excuse to cause harm, for example. Like that can come from that argument. Like if everything's trauma, then nothing's trauma because it's sort of like, well, I, well, this is my trauma doing this and therefore this doesn't matter. Or like I can't, there is no accountability. And I think there's a sense in which all of this work that I do is always there's a lot of tensions to hold. There's a lot of dualities to hold because I think the reality is that everyone who's alive has experienced a form or forms of trauma. The question for me is, is what kind of resources, safety and support did they have to help them in the aftermath of that? Because when we have the necessary support and our body has what we need, essentially it doesn't become or stay trauma. Like, um, and so I think 
you know, trauma-informed work, which is what I sometimes call the work that I do. Maybe a more accurate way to talk about that would be is that I'm always attuning and aware of people's nervous system when I'm working with them. And I'm aware of my own nervous system because that's what we're really talking about when we're talking about trauma. We're talking about a person's capacity to be in their window of tolerance and like for that, whatever they're talking about or what they've experienced to not cause harm. And so I guess going back to your original question, for me, it's like the question is, is like, what's the intent if someone's using it that way? Because if it's to undermine that they have maybe caused harm, or if it is to like make somebody else's trauma, um, to like shame them because it's like, well, I have trauma too. Or, you know, like, it's kind of like that mm. may be, but it doesn't mean we don't have accountability. It doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility. It doesn't mean that we didn't don't have choice. And it doesn't mean that we're not also needing to be part of like repair. And so I guess what I would just say is that sometimes maybe what is needed is more specificity about what we're talking about. If you want to talk about trauma and if you want to call something trauma, we may need to get even more specific as to how that's impacting a person and what that looks like in a really more practical way. I think that's really well put. It leads me to wonder... How do you find yourself on this trail? What led you to devoting yourself to thinking about these things? Yeah. You know, the longer I do my own work, the more I look back. And this is sort of the story of my life in a way. Like, you know, first to survive the experience. But then I graduated from college and I, you know, I wanted to go and be like a social justice lawyer. Like that's kind of what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, through several different experiences, it became clear that like that just wasn't the best fit for me. But I think I really wanted to make a difference. I wanted to help people in pain. And you know, this was in my early 20s and I, I moved to, uh, to Colorado. I, I went to Denver Seminary for my education as a therapist. And at that time, I didn't have the language to understand that I was a survivor of complex trauma. Like, I didn't even know. <laughs> like, which is kind of weird sometimes to talk about those kinds of things because people are like, well, how could you not know? And the reality is, is that the trauma field in general, the mental health field, it hasn't even really begun to understand truly what trauma means until like this last couple of decades. But at this time, which was, you know, about 12, 13 years ago, most trauma was really only looked at still as, you know, someone who had, you know, maybe been a war vet or been in a car accident or, you know, trauma was used only in these a couple of situations. And so, I was in this category of not really, like, I know my family has issues, but it must just be my fault, kind of. Like, it's just my character flaw. It's just my not being enough. It's my own, you know, weak will. It's my, it's my own sin, which not that sin doesn't matter, but it's much more nuanced when we're talking about these things. And so what I came to learn, you know, I became a licensed therapist. I did all this stuff. And and I just found that both personally and with clients, it felt like we would get to a, to a plateau and people would know something, you know, they would know it cognitively, but they couldn't access the reality. Like they couldn't live into 
the reality of something. And I found the same in my own life. Like I knew a lot of information, but that didn't necessarily transform my actual experience. And it really wasn't until I began to be trained in especially uh, something called eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is EMDR, that I began to just dive into what like our body and somatic psychology and how we process emotion and pain and all these things. When all these light bulbs started going off as I began to understand my own trauma and began to understand that what I had experienced in a lot of my life (laughs) is and was trauma. So, you know, it's really been this last decade as I became a parent, as I accept the invitation to go deeper into my own wholeness. That's when I started to think about writing a book. And, you know, so my book Trisofter really began kind of as a love letter to my younger self. This Mm. was the book I wish that I had when I was 20 years old. This is what I had never seen. There are good resources, but I had always wanted someone to sort of make space for me to really not be okay, to Mm -hmm. really be right where I was and yet so very loved. So that's really where, you know, this journey has taken me is that it started as a love letter to myself. And then it began to be sort of understanding that everybody has pain. Now, will all that pain turn to trauma? Not necessarily, God willing, you know, I hope it doesn't. That's one of my desires is that we as a people continue to become more resilient so that pain doesn't have to become trauma. But in the absence of the safety and the resources and the security we need, pain often does become trauma. And so that's really kind of the direction of my work now is both to continue to honor my own story, but to invite others into a posture of compassionate attention, really knowing that that's God's posture towards us. And we are invited to steward that to ourselves. I think there's an inverse to all of this too, that essentially says, whatever is you're reckoning with, you can get past this. Like you can get over this. Mm-hmm. There's, you can pray it away. Oh. You can worship it away. You mm-hmm. can, you know, mm-hmm. you get in your prayer closet and get it worked out with God. And there's a certain kind of healing. And what I think is so interesting about your work, it calls attention to this, the nervous system. It mm-hmm. calls attention to all these processes that are pretty opaque to us mm-hmm. and yet have this outsized impact on how we're feeling and how we're acting and reacting from moment to moment. What is it that drives that reactivity, you think? Yeah, I just want to say really quick that I just resonate with what you're saying about the inverse. I just want to take a second to just like acknowledge and honor that because I think sometimes that is, you know, precisely what keeps us so stuck is that we think we're not praying enough. We think we're not loved enough. We think we're like do like as though we could um sort of spiritually white knuckle our way out of something. And I resonate with that. And I think that just matters so much. And so many of the folks that I work with, I think that's their experience too. But to answer your question, you know, what is it that drives the reactivity? You know, going and looking at our nervous system, it's understanding like at its core, our nervous system is there to be of service to us. 
this again, like I believe this is God's grace that, you know, if you're about to get hit by a car, you better believe I want my sympathetic nervous system to, to charge up and move me into flight so that I will get out of the way. Like that is my body working appropriately and accurately, you know, to say that that happens without a conscious thought. But for many of us, the way that trauma impacts our nervous system is that let's say, you know, you were shamed every time that you showed emotion when you were growing up. You know, maybe you had a parent who came down on you really hard for how weak you were and how much, you know, we don't do that here and all that. Our body begins to detect emotion. Like it's almost like threat, like in that situation. And so Mm -hmm. as an adult, let's say, let's say someone really hurts you, your body, you begin to sense that you're, you might cry. Well, your nervous system is going to remember right? It carries this memory of every time I cry, like there's shame and I'm not good enough and I don't belong anymore because I have emotion. Well, that's going to keep us from feeling that feeling. And your body might move into this place of needing to, you know, maybe first feeling like a lot of anxiety because there's this emotion that you don't get to feel. And then the more you suppress it, maybe it moves down into depression because your body has to bury it. And so going back to your original question, what drives a reactivity? I think there's two things. One is assessing danger appropriately. Like if something's really dangerous, then that's going to drive reactivity. But the second thing is woundedness that we hold, whether it's big T trauma, little T trauma, however you want to see that. If your body detects something might be threatening, that is going to drive a reaction. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in Central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in Central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. 
To stay with the narrative then, it sounds like it was the experience of feeling ill-equipped to address your own experiences with trauma that led you to want to work with others who'd had those wounds. Is, is that a fair way to lay it out? Yeah. I mean, I think that our field has just begun <laughs> to begin to equip for a more holistic way to deal with our experiences. Like talk therapy could only take us anyone so far. Well, and it's a bit reflective of modernity, right? We think if we can get our heads right, if we can get our thoughts right, then everything else will follow. But in reality, we're discovering every day that somehow the body knows something that the head doesn't. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, this has been a really important element of my own faith, especially I think in the last decade is understanding the humanity of Jesus. You know, that Jesus came in a body, that Jesus lived and experienced life in a body. And that matters for us as humans, that it, it has significance for us because God really could have done you know, Jesus could have come a lot of different ways, but he chose a body. And so for me, it changes that even though, you know, we're talking about like, there's the mind or like there's the brain and then there's your body. And it reminds mm -hmm. me of that spiritual division that we try to make between like your spirit and your body. It's almost like we put things on this hierarchy. And what I see in Jesus is this holistic picture of what he's inviting us to of this humanity. Like, what does it mean to be fully human and alive? And there's a sense in which that's a picture of healing. Healing mm. is integration. Healing is wholeness. That's what, you know, a lot of times in the trauma world, that's, that's what we talk about when we talk about healing is that it's integration because we're bringing the parts of our story that we've had to disconnect and separate from, they're coming home. And they're able to fully integrate into our brain in the way that all memories integrate into our brain. And so I just think there's this really beautiful intersection of, you know, when you, when you think about like um, modernity and, you know, these ways that we w sometimes want to compartmentalize all these things when actually what we're really going for <laughs> is calling all those things home. And for me, that just, my, the implications for my faith are profound. It moves me so much to know that Jesus lived in a body and that he experienced pain and that he wept and that he set boundaries and he got hungry because that speaks to right now in the middle of our humanity, that Jesus knows what that's like. What's it look like for people who you've seen take this journey and, and come home to themselves? Well, I just... I see in folks who do this work that they begin to embrace this idea of process. That's usually one of the first things that I notice is that there's a sense in which we accept the reality that this is not like check a box type of work. <laughs> you know, I sometimes say like, I'm not gonna graduate from trying softer. Like this is the work of my life. And that feels like a huge exhale to me. Because what it means is that God is not sitting there like waiting for me to be perfect. It means that I get to lean on the reality that I am beloved of God. And all the good that comes from the process 
It's the overflow. It's not like, hey, look at how I'm healing and now I'm loved. (laughs) It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's like, look at how I'm loved and now I'm healing. And so what I find, you know, both in myself and in folks that I see do this is that we begin to find that there is, you know, sometimes I call this almost like reparenting, but some people might think of this as like, you know, depending on the perspective you're coming from, it's like, there's like a true self or there's these different ways to hone in on this part of ourselves that really is able to be, you know, fully in connection with ourselves, but is also really open to, you know, the spirit of God. And there's like sort of has access to the wisdom of ourselves. I think as we do this work, for me, I call it sometimes my adult self, it feels like this safe place to land that when I mess up, when things are not perfect, like I just know that like God is with me, God is with us and we can like land there. And often, you know, the paradox is, is that compassion usually helps us, you know, to turn towards pain with that compassion. And then that allows us to say, well, hey, like, maybe I need to take responsibility here, or maybe I need to make this change, or maybe I need to go and talk with this person because maybe I said something I shouldn't have said. It's like this paradox that like having the self-compassion, having this gentleness oftentimes invites us to actually do deeper work. Two related questions. One would be, is there a way to do that or, or to go on that journey without professional help? And then related on that, how good of a job is the church doing at setting the table for this stuff? Mm. So I would just say for your first question, I think there is a way to do parts of this on our own for sure, or, or maybe without professional help, not on our own. Cause we all need, we need people, you know, we can't exist in isolation, but I think depending on your story, depending on the level of potential trauma you've experienced, having some support of a therapist, specifically a trauma-informed therapist, I think can be really helpful. But I do think, and we can do a lot. <laughs> we can do a lot. And, you know, I think that part of it though, is just making sure that you have a framework to do it in that feels good to you. You know, if someone's interested in this, I, you know, and they're listening, they may consider picking up my book because I think I try to come from a lens where I leave it open to say, you might want to find support in these types of situations. But the beautiful thing about our bodies is that we really, God really did design them to have us be um, able to have access to a lot of wisdom. And as we learn to pay attention to the wisdom, we can do more and more to steward and reparent sort of on our own, you know, not in isolation, but like that we are sort of leading it within ourselves. Um, And so I guess all that to say, yeah, there's a lot of great tools out there. And I just would invite folks to, to be curious and to, and to bring compassion as they're able. And I also say too, you know, if you're finding yourself wanting to connect with this kind of information, but you're noticing you, you might be going out of what I, what is called the window of tolerance, which is Mm -hmm. just that range of arousal in which we can feel our feelings and we're able to sort of stay integrated because when we go out of it, we'll either go into fight or flight or we'll start to dissociate. So if you're a person who you're noticing 
that that happens for you a lot, it may be good the more significantly that happens, the more that it might be helpful to find a therapist just because we may need that additional support. And, and listen, there's no shame in that. So I think those are the caveats that I would give. No, and I think that needs to be underlined because in so many, particularly inside evangelical traditions, you know, the idea of having a therapist is stigmatized big time. These are questions that you you and your pastor and your Bible ought to be able to figure out on their own. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was in my early 20s and I was talking to, a, he wasn't a pastor at my church. It was a class I was in and, and, and he was a pastor. And somebody asked him this question and he goes, yeah, you, you should ask a therapist that. That's not my job. That's not what I do. It was so paradigm shifting to me because of the the kind of environment that I had been in was quite the opposite. It was the pastor was the answer man for mm. for literally everything. And I just think it's really, really hard for people to imagine, you know, asking for help. And I also think people walk around with a significant degree of fear and anxiety about, well, you know, well, what if they tell me the wrong thing? What if they're on a different page doctrinally? Mm. What if my faith gets messed up? If I actually, is it safer for me to just not shake the jar of sand mm. because I'm afraid of what might come to the surface if I actually do that in the first mm -hmm. place? Yeah. And I just would want to say, you know, if, if there's a person listening who has those worries that a good therapist, their job is to create space for you to be able to work through and bring up those things that feel most important to you. And the job of a therapist really isn't to give advice. You know, it's really, I kind of, I talk about it sometimes like a, I'm a, like I'm a midwife. That feels like sometimes the, the most accurate depiction. Like I'm not doing, <laughs> like I'm not the one, you know, giving labor and or doing labor or all those types of things. I am helping to facilitate the process. And that's what a good therapist will do is to ask questions or to help provide resources and to help you stay in alignment with your values and true to yourself and true to, you know, especially from a Christian perspective in alignment with who God is and what that looks like in your life. And so even when a therapist may not even be from a Christian background, if they're a good therapist, they'll really respect your faith and what you bring. I just say that because I know not everyone's been to a therapist before, and that can feel really kind of scary to even consider. And so that's really kind of the goal is to help provide you with the resources and to facilitate that process. And if you find a therapist is giving you like, do this and then do this and do this, I would say maybe find a new therapist. <laughs> that's great. Well, I want to make sure we, we take a moment. You, you've mentioned it a couple of times, this phrase, try softer. It's such a great, I mean, it's not a visual, but it's, it's a great metaphor. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what you mean when you say try softer? Yeah. So try softer is a phrase that has kind of transformed through the years a little bit for me. It was first said by my, a counseling supervisor of mine to me when I was just a really new therapist, super pretty anxious, kind of overworking, <laughs> um, cared a lot about my clients, but just was not quite grounded a little bit in what I needed to be. And so this wise therapist who was so gentle and not in any way condescending, he said, Andy, you know, you're doing such a good job. Like you care about your clients so much. And 
said, but what would it be like instead of trying harder if you tried softer? And when he first said that to me, like I got like a part of me was like, oh, that sounds amazing. And then a part of me was like angry (laughs) because I was a little bit like, how is anything going to get done if I just try softer all the time? Like I just, it's like I wanted to get it, but I was like not quite ready for it yet. And so over the next couple of years, this is an idea that I continued to chew on. And really what it's come to mean for me is that I learn and that we learn to pay compassionate attention to our experience. And it's this compassionate attention that allows us to really attend to and listen to the information of our body. And so, you know, earlier I used that phrase reparenting. And so in a way, like this is what this is all interconnected, that when we're paying compassionate attention, the top of our brain, our prefrontal cortex needs to be able to be online. And that only happens if we're in our window of tolerance. And so if we're able to sort of observe ourselves with that compassion, you know, we might begin to notice like, I don't know, maybe, you know, so-and-so said something to me and I'm starting to feel so angry and this reaction feels really big, but I begin to notice that maybe this is feeling like it's about more than just the situation, Uh, you know, and and maybe I begin to say, you know, I'm going to go take a a five minute walk and I'm going to let my body move through that energy. And then I realize that when so-and-so said that, it really reminded me of the way my dad used to talk to me. But that was when I was 10. You know, I don't have the resources I have now as an adult. And so I can go back to that situation and I could say, hey, you know what? I didn't really love how you said that. Could you do that differently? This is this way of being because so often in our culture and honestly, often in our church culture, we think of gentleness or compassion and tenderness. Maybe we wouldn't even admit it, but a lot of people would say that's weak. A lot of people would say, um, well, that doesn't get anything done. You know, they might say, what about when we, when real work has to get done? And I love how there's this way, you know, again, thinking of my old supervisor when he said, try softer, you know, he didn't say not to try, Mm -hmm. but it's a different way. It's a different way through. And I think for a lot of us, for a lot of folks that I work with, we have found ourselves really stuck because the same old way of doing things just aren't working anymore. The shame doesn't produce any change anymore, or maybe it produces short-term change or It just creates the same arguments, the same addictions, the same roadblocks. And so I think Try Softer truly is something that I think each of us can take and say, in what way am I invited here to have compassionate attention towards this thing that is so hard or this part of my body or this experience or this relationship? How could I shift my posture? So good. Your book is so good. I, I really, I've, I think I've bought f- five or six copies of it at this oh, point. Oh, wow. Handed it out. It's, it's meant a lot to me. Mm. So thank you so much for writing it. I hope you write more. Thank you. I've really appreciated our conversation. First he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Thanks for listening. Cultivated is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by me. It's edited by Mark Owens. 
Our theme song is Eden Was a Garden by Roman Candle. Come back next week. I'll be sitting down with CT's president and CEO, Tim Dalrymple. See you then. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.